Hi guys, um, today we're going to do a presentation on uh, World War One. Um, so we talked about on Friday how the Great War, as it is called, started. Um, we are today going to talk about what happened during it, the most important points about um, geography regarding this war, um, why this war was different, why is it World War One versus just being like, you know, the War of 1914 or something like that, um, as well as how this ended. Now, if we were an actual class, we probably would have taken two or three days to do this. So we would have had a notes day, um, but we also would have done other things as well. So like maybe had a documents day or um, an escape room or something like that. Unfortunately, we're not in class. So I'm going to compress everything that would have been about World War One into this single PowerPoint presentation. Um, is that doing a, an, uh, an injustice to World War One? Probably, but we have only one, two, three, four, four more days or something like that, and we have some other things I would like us to talk about. So as it is, um, this is what we uh, are going to be able to do. We'll probably talk about World War One again when you get to U.S. history, so let not your heart be troubled. You will get to see more of World War One, particularly the American involvement in World War One. Um, but for today, we're just going to talk about the major points um, so that you have like kind of a basis of uh, World War One information. So let's go to slide number two. Um, World War One was different than all of the other wars that had come before it. Um, World War One was not traditional warfare, for one thing. In a traditional um, battle or a war, you have two armies, they meet up on a field of battle. Um, a battle is going to consist of uh, those armies kind of lined up. You have maybe muskets possibly, or if you're in the Middle Ages or the ancient world, you're going to have just swords and maybe like some catapults. Um, and the person in charge basically says, charge, and you go. Um, this is not what happens in World War One, And in fact, they try to start the war with this, which is these traditional battle formations. Um, but we're going to see that that does not work at all for a couple of reasons regarding the Industrial Revolution, for one thing, and the new technologies that were coming about. There are new weapons. Um, machine guns are used for the first time in a major war. Now, it's not the first time machine guns have ever been used. Um, the conquest of Sudan by the British, for instance, was aided by the fact that they had uh, machine guns. I believe the Gatling gun was the very imp uh, important one. So they had thousands, for instance, of Sudanese people who would fight against like 80 British people and all of the Sudanese would die because they're up against machine guns. Um, this is really the first time in a major war, however, between multiple countries and everyone's using all of these weapons. So it's not kind of like a a suicide mission, really. Um, I mean, it kind of is, but uh, everyone has the type of weaponry that uh, is available at this point, making the stakes a lot higher. Um, uh, in addition, you have uh, well-equipped militaries that are very large because of militarism, because people keep building up their armies and their militaries. Um, and we are going to see after the war that when the war ends, they sign documentation that basically uh, tries to reduce the size of Germany's military. 
up until this point in history, World War I was the largest conflict of any kind. Um, it is, of course, since been replaced in this category and this uh, particular achievement by World War II. Um, 68 million people fought on any given side of the war, mostly men. Um, there were some cases of women taking up arms and fighting as well. You mostly see that in Russia. Um, however, women would join the war front working in the hospitals um, that were uh, in along the different fronts. Um, women were not allowed to join the militaries in the various Western European and American armies. 39 million people are going to be killed, missing in action, or wounded uh, by the time the war ends, November 11th, 1918. Um, and this is both soldiers as well as just civilians that were caught in the fire of war, essentially. That is a large number. And I realize... Obviously, it is a big number, but I think a lot of times when we do say these very big numbers, because it's just a word on a PowerPoint, um, we might not necessarily be like, oh, wow, but that's 39 million lives that are lost, uh, families that need to grieve for the people who uh, did not come home or who lost a leg or who lost uh, an arm or who have shell shock, uh, which is PTSD, which today we take seriously. Um, but if you came home from World War I in 1918 and you had PTSD and maybe like something, we wouldn't have cars, but let's just say the sound of like a car backfiring takes place or maybe like... Um, a loud noise happens and you suddenly fall to the ground because that's what you're trained to do and you have PTSD. Um, that was seen as you're just not being a man, quite frankly, and you need to get over yourself, which today we hear that and we're like, that's awful. Um, but in 1918, that was the reality of many people who came home from the war. Um, they were battle scarred and there was nothing really that could be done to assist them. Let's go to slide number three. There are two fronts to the war. The Western Front is in the western part of Germany, or the border of Western Germany. Uh, so you see the Western Front taking place in Belgium, in Eastern France, um, as opposed to the Eastern Front, which is between the German Empire and Russia. Um, the Western Front is the main theater of the war, and a lot of the literature and the movies that you see that take place in World War I um, is going to be taking place on the Western Front. Uh, if we were in class today, we'd watch a clip from the film All Quiet on the Western Front, which is based off of a very uh, well-known uh, book. I had to read it, actually, when I was in AP U.S. History. Um, we would watch a clip from uh, Wonder Woman to show you what the Western Front visually looked like, particularly what No Man's Land looked like. Um, the Western Front is really, when you think of World War I battles, uh, that imagination that you see there is really what uh, the Western Front is. The Western Front is going to be fought between Germany and its allies, mostly Austria, as well as France, the Belgians, and the British, and then later on the Americans will join as well. Um, 
and essentially the Western Front is a stalemate. The reason being, they all have the same machine guns. Um, and if you can imagine, uh, particularly in Eastern France and in Belgium, you might not know this, but those parts of Europe are extremely flat. It's not like here where we have a lot of hills, and so you're walking uphill sometimes and you're walking downhill. It's just flat. It's like you're going to Kansas, basically. Um, can you imagine what would happen if you had thousands of people, every single one of them had machine guns, and you're fighting on flat land? You would mow down everyone in front of you, including people in your own army, um, and you will be mowed down as well. So they can't go up. I mean, they could theoretically build like towers, but those could be knocked down very easily. So where else are these troops going to go? They need to go down. And so they start to build long trenches in the ground in France and Belgium. And you'd basically have people um, in the trenches. Uh, they would uh, have guns at the ready. So if the other side came running towards them, then you could shoot down them as they're coming. In between these two trenches, so the German trench and like the French trench, uh, is a piece of land called no man's land. And you're basically fighting over this land for months on end. Um, it's kind of a little bit like football. You know how they're trying to constantly move that line of scrimmage? That's what World War I is. Um, and it takes you months, essentially, to gain, like, 10 feet's worth of land, or feet worth. Um, it's basically a stalemate. Over the course of the war, essentially, nobody is able to actually gain any land because the weaponry is so... Uh, modern and it's just so deadly that if you send someone over the top as it's called over the top of the trench to run towards the other trench it's a suicide mission they are going to die um, and basically all these soldiers for France and Britain and the United States they're essentially being sent over the top and their commanders know that they're going to die but the commanders also know that they just need to do something and they basically need to sacrifice their troops it's very very sad um, at the Somme, which is the, uh, it's a particularly important battle in British history. Um, it took place over the course of like, like it's like five months. Um, 60,000 uh, allied men and women uh, died on like the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Um, and by the time that five-month fight was done, neither side gained an advantage. I think they won maybe like a mile's worth of land, and that's it. Um, just to show you how much of a stalemate this is and how kind of impractical this style of warfare is. Let's go to slide number four. The Easter Front's very different, mostly because uh, Germany and Austria have a lot of money. They have a lot of uh, weaponry militarism. Um, they're fighting on the Eastern Front, Russia, which is kind of backward. We're going to talk more about Russia tomorrow on Tuesday. Um, Russia is uh, basically lots of farmland. Um, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, you might remember, tried to modernize Russia, and they did to a certain extent, um, but to another extent, Russia was very much behind everyone in 1914. And so, Whereas the Germans and the Austrians would have, like, machine guns, the Russians did not have things like that. So they were basically mowed down. They're poorly equipped, and once again, the generals keep sending Russian troops out knowing that there's no way they can actually accomplish anything, and they're just going to die. Um, 
what we are going to talk about tomorrow, which is the Russian Revolution, um, is a directly caused by the turmoil of World War I and Russia's role that it played in World War I. The casualties on this front are even higher. And whereas it's, I mean, it's stalemate on the Western Front, at least there's a fight going on. Here, it's generally just civilians just being forced to go to battle and just dying as a result. Let's go to slide number five. As you can imagine, uh, the war causes strain in Europe. Um, By the time the war is over, uh, European morale for fighting is gone. Uh, Whereas at the start of war, there was kind of this nationalistic pride, like you need to go support your your country. Uh, You need to prove that your country is better than everyone else, nationalism. Um, By the end of the war, that was evaporated. They just wanted to get out of these battles, as you can imagine, um, because it was doing bad things politically back home. It was very unpopular. Uh, nobody wanted to actually sign up for the war. Um, they needed to actually conscript people, uh, which is draft people. And even if you uh, didn't want to go in the military or like if you're like me and you're kind of useless in terms of like physical activity, uh, you still had to go. By 1916, every single country at war had a draft in place. By 1917, Germany was sending 15-year-olds to go fight. Uh, That's how low they were on uh, strong-bodied men. They couldn't muster up 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds or 16-year-olds. They had to go to people that are your age and basically send them out to war, which... uh, we don't do, as you can imagine, when in our country uh, today, um, you need to be 18 to join the military. That was not an option really back then. The economy before the war had been pretty good um, because of industrialization. It was kind of an up and up type of thing. We talked about the Gilded Age last year. You might remember that. Um, you know, talk about the Gilded Age again, Uh, but it was basically at the end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century when business is booming. Uh, The United States, for instance, experiences its its largest period of growth in economic history. Um, The war completely destroyed that economy in Europe. Um, Germany has to borrow heavily in order to fund its war effort, so do the British. the British also blockaded the North Sea so that the German militaries, uh, the, um, the ships that the Germans had spent so much money to build because they wanted to compete against the British, uh, they weren't able to actually leave the North Sea and therefore the Germans and the Austrians back at home were starving because they couldn't get food. Um, the only country that's economy did quite well out of World War I uh, is the same country whose economy did quite well out of World War II, uh, the United States. The war was obviously not fought here, um, and so it's not like they have cities that are just being firebombed and, like, uh, destroyed. Um, so whereas Belgium, for instance, and Eastern France, like, if you go to those countries, to this day, you see a lot more modern architecture because just everything was destroyed during World War I. Um, the United States obviously didn't have to deal with that. And as a result, they were able to use the war to sell to the Allies and build up the economy and uh, help sell products, basically. Slide number six. Um, Speaking of the United States, the United States sat out the first three years of the war. 
Um, it was kind of expected that the United States, when it did join, would join the Allies, um, because culturally we're very tied to the British. Um, same thing with uh, we have good relations with France. We have pretty much always had good relations with France. They were the country that helped us out during the Revolutionary War, for instance. Um, and so there was really no real opportunity that the Americans would join the German side. Um, Germany uh, was angry about this, especially because the Americans would provide food and weapons to the British. Um, and so the Germans decided to stop those uh, shiploads of food and weaponry um, by using unrestricted submarine warfare, which is basically that they're going to, if they see a ship, regardless of whether it's a military vessel or whether it's a, a ship just transporting goods, like a merchant vessel, uh, the Germans are going to shoot it and uh, sink it. They did that to a passenger ship uh, in 1915 called the Lusitania. Um, initially, that got a lot of bad press, and they said they wouldn't do it again. In uh, 1917, they decided to start uh, shooting at American ships again. In addition, that same year, the British intercepted a note called the Zimmerman Note, um, it was from, like, Germany's foreign secretary, uh, and it was written to the Mexican government, basically saying that if the uh, Mexicans assisted the Germans, then the Germans would help the Mexicans invade the U.S. and gain back land that they had lost during the Mexican-American War. So the Americans, uh, under President Woodrow Wilson, who had kept the United States out of war for the first three years, um, in, I believe it's March of 1917, they decide to join the war. Uh, it takes them a few months. They don't arrive in Europe until like October of 1917. Um, but they do set out to join the war on the side of the Allies to provide fresh troops. These are troops that haven't been fighting for the last three years. Like they're actually kind of gung-ho and ready to go. Um, in addition to supplies and food uh, for the Allied troops. The president at the time is Woodrow Wilson, who you see here in this slide. Woodrow Wilson, um, he was, he's kind of, he's an interesting guy. Um, he was a college professor, actually. He taught political science uh, before he became president. Um, he was also the governor of New Jersey. He was uh, president of Bryn Mawr University, as well as Princeton, I believe. I could be wrong about Princeton. Um, but he basically, like, is a career, uh, I wouldn't say politician, but somebody who really knows politics, because he's taught politics for many years. Um, he's also one of the most racist presidents that did not own slaves. He was born in Virginia and um, did not like black people at all. It was very uh, racist towards black people um, and wouldn't allow them to come to, like, the White House. He had a special viewing of a racist movie uh, called Birth of a Nation. Um, so he's a very interesting, probably not one of my favorite presidents, but he's certainly an interesting guy in terms of his uh, policies towards World War I because he also wants to join the war so that he can set out to establish the post-war world system. He's really into, like, wonky things like how countries are going to interact with one another. Um, and he wants to be a peacemaker regarding this war. And so he writes something called the 14 points. Um, these 14 points called for freedom of the seas, 
free trade, large-scale reduction of arms and anti-secret treaties, Eastern European self-determination. Basically, people in Eastern Europe, uh, such as Serbia and Bosnia, get to decide what government they want to be a part of or if they want to make their own government. The right of nations to choose their own form of government as well as a general association of nations to keep peace. And it's these things that he believes are going to stop the war from, sorry, the world from going to war again. So, for instance, if there's freedom of the seas, uh, you can't just shoot people in the middle of the ocean. People won't want to start wars. Um, if you have free trade where you're not uh, taxing people to import goods, um, generally that gets the economies and countries going and people tend to like free trade. Usually trade um, privileges are what cause wars. So if you have free trade, it doesn't cause wars. Uh, Large-scale reduction of arms. Makes sense. If you don't want there to be a war, then maybe everyone shouldn't have hoarded machine guns. Okay. And to secret treaties. So you can't make a treaty with someone without declaring it to other people, which is what a lot of other nations had done prior to World War One, and so therefore they had to fight in World War One, even if they didn't necessarily want to. Uh, once again, Eastern Europe is the powder keg of Europe. It is what started this whole war to begin with, their nationalism and them shooting Franz Ferdinand. Um, so allowing them the right to self-determine, not forcing them to be a part of like the Austrian Empire, the German Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, that is going to be, uh, or the British or the French Empire for that matter, uh, that is going to cause wars to not start again in his opinion. And then the last thing is a general association of nations. Um, So uh, the general association of nations, sorry if I'm repeating myself, my phone just rang and so then it turned off my whole recording. So the general association of nations is going to basically be something like the UN. Um, He wants there to be an organization where all countries join and therefore they can set boundaries and uh, norms that everyone needs to follow. Um, That's going to be his big uh, thing, his baby, basically, that Wilson wants to bring to the rest of the world. And we're going to see that that is um, uh, quite a failure of his 14 points. We'll see why it is as well. Slide seven. The Germans knew that once the Americans arrived, uh, the war was basically over. Um, The Americans are fresh, they have a lot of weapons, they have a lot of food they can use, um, and the Germans have basically exhausted their troops. And so they decided to spend from March, when the Americans um, declared war, uh, to October, when the Americans actually arrived, to really have a final push um, against the British and the French. This final push, while it makes sense in that period, they want to basically end the war before the Americans can even arrive to fight. Um, It exhausted their troops so much that by the time the Americans arrived, it was just a, they were, they were done. There, there was no way they were putting up a fight anymore. The war ended uh, November 11th, 1918 at 11 a.m. So 11-11 at 11 a.m. with, uh, an armistice, which is basically just like everyone's putting down their guns. And people were dying up until like 10.58 a.m. on November 11th. This is the reason why we celebrate Veterans Day on November 11th every year. Um, However, in Europe, as well as Canada, um, it's not Veterans Day. It's basically their version of Memorial Day. It's called Remembrance Day. Um, 
as a result of World War I, many of those governments that we discussed yesterday had collapsed. Uh, Russia has collapsed. They started a Russian revolution in 1917. We're talking about that tomorrow. Um, and so the Russian Empire is gone. Um, Germany collapsed. The government completely just like did a nosedive. Doesn't exist anymore. The Kaiser is out, as this newspaper says. Um, Austria, Franz Joseph had died. He was the emperor. His nephew was Franz Ferdinand. Uh, but Franz Joseph died in 1916. I think another distant cousin had become uh, the emperor. Um, but he was kicked off the throne in Austria. No longer had a monarchy anymore. Um, and Austria was also lost all of its territories besides Austria itself. Um, in addition, the Ottoman Empire, which had sided with Austria and Germany, uh, also collapsed. Um, that, as a result, uh, the Allies, particularly Britain and France, are going to have their choice over what happens to that land, particularly in the Ottoman Empire. Um, whole areas of continental Europe lay in rubble, so lots of eastern France was completely destroyed, um, as well as pretty much the whole country of Belgium, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, for instance, um, the city of Ypres in Belgium, if you go to slide number three, uh, that is what the city of Ypres looked like um, following World War uh, One, And this is a city that during the Middle Ages was a beautiful city. It was the center of the cloth trade. It was extremely wealthy. And it is essentially just in ruins at the end of this war due to uh, the battles that had taken place. Let's go to slide eight. So there's a lot of animosity in Europe. Uh, the British and the French, the French in particular, um, are extremely upset by the fact that half of their country is in ruins. Uh, the Belgians, as you can imagine, are as well. Uh, the British, who had spent tons of money in fighting this war, um, are also very angry. Uh, and so whereas Wilson kind of comes to Paris, where there's a peace conference, and he has the uh, belief that everyone's going to be all fine and dandy and happy with one another, and we're all going to like sing kumbaya with each other and blah, blah, blah. Um, all the rest of the countries uh, don't agree with him at all. The president of France, uh, Georges Clemenceau, uh, when Wilson talks about his 14 points, which are all about like free trade, allowing people to determine themselves where they, which country they want to be part of, freedom of the seas, Clemenceau uh, states, Mr. Wilson bores me with his 14 points. Why, God only had 10. So, Wilson apparently is not, uh, living up to the Ten Commandments. Uh, Wilson urges for peace without victory. Um, the other leaders, however, especially Britain and France, want reparations, or basically repayment for all the costs that they had incurred during the war. So Germany needs to repay France for all the buildings that are destroyed. Britain wants repayment for all the people who died, for all of the, uh, for the economy that has collapsed back at home. Um, uh, and so the British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, as well as the French, uh, President Georges Clemenceau are really going to combat against Wilson when it comes to the fate of Europe. The Italians had later on in the war joined the Allied side as well, so the Italian Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando um, also was present at the Pal uh, Paris Peace Conference, even though they weren't one of the OGs in that battle. 
it's going to slide nine. What comes out of this conference is what is called the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and the Treaty of Versailles is what ends the war between the Allies and Germany. Uh, and this treaty calls for Germany to accept full responsibility and blame for the war. They have to pay reparations, repayments uh, to the Allies. Um, and the repayments is a lot of money. It's $2.7 trillion today. Now, keep in mind that at this time, Germany itself is extremely poor now because they, um, they've just spent a ton of money fighting this war as well. They didn't have enough men to send off to war. They had to get children, basically, uh, to go off to war. Um, however, if they wanted to end the war, they had to sign this deal. They had to accept responsibility. In addition, uh, this deal is going to weaken the size of the German military. They can't have a, more than a certain number of men fighting, um, as well as more than a certain number of like, battleships and stuff like that. Uh, and the western part of Germany, uh, the Rhineland, um, is going to be given to France. Uh, this was a piece of land that Germany had taken after the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, that was that war that... Um, Following it, Germany became a state. The Second Reich started, and they were at the uh, Palace of Versailles. Um, so now, basically, that land that they had taken during that war um, in the 1870s is now France's again. And when Germany attacks France again during World War II, um, this is going to be a major point of contention, the Rhineland that uh, France has. And France has it today. If you go to the city of Strasbourg, for instance, um, there's a decidedly German influence, even though everyone speaks French there. Uh, the Germans are basically forced to sign this treaty, um, and there's really no way for them to get out of it. It's going to slide number 10. The Treaty of Versailles also... Um, did some other things as well. Uh, it gave Eastern European countries the choice of self-determination. Um, this is a bit confusing, however, because Eastern European countries don't have like clean-cut boundaries. Uh, so you might be in one village that has mostly Romanians, but in the next village there are mostly Austrians. So what country do you become a part of? Do you make your own country? Uh, there's a lot of overlap between ethnic groups and religious groups and language groups, and so it sounds great in person, but how does it actually happen in real life, basically, is the issue. Um, new countries, therefore, are going to be formed across Eastern Europe, um, as well as, uh, so both Southeastern as well as Northeastern Europe, coming out of the former Austrian, Ottoman, Russian, and German empires. Slide 11. Uh France and Britain in particular pushed really hard for what is called the mandate system. Um, so the lands that are not in Europe, uh, but that had been lost by the Ottomans um, and the Germans, uh, France and Britain are going to be the winners in this case, and they are going to get mandates over this land. So for instance, the British are going to get the mandate of Palestine. Um, that's why in the 1940s, it was the British who... Um, decided to give Palestine to uh, a Jewish uh, state. Um, so the British were the ones who set up the state of Israel in the 1940s over land they had won during World War I. Um, France would get a mandate in, like, Lebanon, for instance. Um, so if you go to Lebanon today, um, 
French is going to be a language you mostly learn, like, in school, um, because it was their colonial overlord, I suppose you could say. My sister's best friend was Lebanese in high school, and uh, her parents always pushed her to learn French, because that was just the language that their childhood, that they were, it was emphasized for them to learn in their parents. In theory, these mandates are supposed to be temporary, um, in practice, it is a permanent solution until much later on in the century. So in the 1940s, you start to see wars coming uh, into place. In the 1950s, for instance, Egypt is going to try and get, um, uh, is going to step away from this mandate system, and they are going to try and um, uh, become their own country, and they'll succeed as well. Um, slide number 12. Last thing that comes about at the uh, Treaty of Versailles is the League of Nations. Um, the League of Nations is basically that baby that Wilson had, um, this dream child that he has where he wants a coalition of all countries to get together and to um, basically fight for uh, the good of everyone. Um, they're supposed to negotiate disputes. They're supposed to stop wars from happening. Um, they're supposed to kind of fight together to take uh, action against a common aggressor. Um, uh, over 40 countries joined this League of Nations, including, as you can see here, Belgium, France, England, and Italy. Uh, but the one country uh, that had worked so hard to get it to actually exist and then refused to join was the United States. Um, the United States Senate, which was controlled by Republicans at this time, Wilson was a Democrat, uh, flat out refused to join the League of Nations. And so Wilson, um, who actually wound up having a stroke a couple months after this whole event, uh, was devastated because uh, the League of Nations exists, but we're not in it. Um, and in fact, the League was very weakened without the support of the United States because it was quite clear after World War One that the U.S. Um, was starting to play a much larger role in world affairs. Furthermore, um, unlike the U.N. today, uh, the League has absolutely no formal powers um, outside of its member states to do anything. Um, so if you don't have a lot of member states, um, and let's just say they're all like 40 countries that really don't have much power, there's no way that the League can actually enforce anything. Um, there's no benefit to it or to any of the larger states to actually listen to it. Now, we're going to stop here today. Um, we will definitely pick up with uh, other effects of this, both tomorrow when we talk about the Russian Revolution, um, as well as probably on Wednesday when I'm going to uh, talk to you guys about like the Great Depression. And both this class as well as Wednesday's class are going to lead to our discussion on Thursday um, regarding uh, the start of World War II. Uh, as I mentioned, we're not going to actually get to talk about World War II. We're just going to get to that first point uh, where we um, just talk about like what caused World War II. Um, so I'm sorry about that. But once again, you will get to learn about that when we get to U.S. history. It's just one of the unfortunate um, results of this quarantine. In any case, uh, I hope you guys have a good day. I hope you guys um, get to uh, kind of enjoy this end of the school year. I realize it's still probably a bit just weird and strange, and it's probably annoying that you haven't gotten to see your friends. Um, so I do hope that you guys have been able to keep in contact with one another. Uh, have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.